Hey, it's Melvin, one of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you're a longtime listener, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Reviews are the lifeblood of the podcast world, so if you want to help us out, it'll take only a moment of your time. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name's Melvin, and I can't believe it's not butter. Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a non-spoiler Christian movie podcast where we sit at the table of cinema and eat. Tonight we'll be dining on Andy Machete's It. Releasing in 2017, It's financial success was a bit of a surprise for many. Despite the cult classic status of the 1990 miniseries, as well as the R rating of the film, 2017's It went on to make just over $700 million worldwide. That's ridiculous in scale when you realize the production budget was only $35 million. It even holds the number one spot for the highest grossing domestic release of an R-rated horror movie. Although, when you account for inflation, The Exorcist still holds that spot with a strong grip. 2017's It was a success story for the ages, and a sequel was inevitable. Don't worry, we'll be talking about that in the next episode of Cinematic Doctrine, but first, let's talk about this one instead. To start things off, if you don't know anything about 2017's It, let's get you caught up. It was a dark and stormy night in Derry, Maine, and George Denbro wants to build a paper boat. His plan? He wants to race it down the street in the flooding water. His brother Bill helps him build his boat, and Georgie is on his way. As he chases it, it unfortunately gets sucked into a nearby storm drain. When he peeks underneath to see if he can reach it, the strangest thing meets his gaze. There's a clown in the storm drain. With glowing eyes and messy tufts of orange hair, the clown introduces himself as Pennywise and offers George Denbro a balloon, popcorn, and all sorts of carnival fare. Cautious yet interested, Georgie talks with the clown, and finally Pennywise offers him the boat. However, Georgie needs to reach for it, and as he sticks his hand into the storm drain, Pennywise reveals sharp, blistering teeth and chomps little Georgie's arm off. The next minute, Georgie's gone, sucked into the storm drain, and goes missing. Bill is devastated, and as a couple months pass, he's hard set on finding his brother. Enlisting the help of his school friends, Bill and the gang begin a journey of self-exploration and coming of age as they unlock the hidden mystery of Derry and the horrific clown, Pennywise. It is rated R for violence, horror, bloody images, and for language. The key thing about this movie is that it's a lot of horrific stuff all involving minors. Or, in a way, it's at the behest of minors. Stuff doesn't totally happen to them, but around them, and that can make it a little more frightening than if they were simply adults. The violence isn't ridiculously visceral, at least I don't think so, but there are definitely sequences that are a bit more than what people may be expecting. I suppose an easy comparison is looking at Stranger Things and then looking back at this movie. Where Stranger Things is scary, but not super graphic, it gets a little more graphic, with certain things like torn limbs, graphic cuts, and some CGI stuff that can be a little shocking. The language is pervasive and delivered by minors. Apart from some characters being sailors, there's a fair amount of profanity using the Lord's name, and honestly, that bothered me a bit more, especially one delivery at the end. There's also sexual innuendo used throughout, and that's something to be aware of. Also, and this isn't in the certificate, but still really, really stupid, 
There's one scene where all the kids are jumping into a lake in their underwear. It's it's just it's just dumb to essentially ask your child actors to disrobe and wear nothing but tidy whities just to have your characters do something like that. This is especially stupid if anyone knows about the source material, where at the end of Stephen King's book he essentially puts the young characters in a rather precarious situation I will most definitely not detail here. But suffice to say, this film skips that scene, thank goodness, but decides it will still have a scene where it will put child actors in a precarious situation such as wearing their tidy whities on camera. It's honestly the dumbest thing ever. But I digress. That's about it for the content warning. Before we dig into 2017's It, I also wanted to share real quick that if you've come to enjoy Cinematic Doctrine and would like to support the show, be sure to leave a review on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. You can also follow the Facebook page for updates on movie news, upcoming episodes, and my own shenanigans. Also, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month, as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from, all of which go toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. Just to make you all aware, I will also have an episode for IT Chapter 2 just after this one. So if you're interested in my thoughts on the sequel, be sure to check that out when it's up. That said, let's look at 2017's IT. It's good. It's not great, but it's good. I think that's the best way to start, because the film is a constant back and forth between some good stuff and some bad stuff. It's like a teeter-totter. You're sometimes in the air and sometimes you're grounded. That's the whole point of a teeter-totter, so once you get past that, the movie makes a little more sense. So let's talk casting. I mean, goodness gracious, what great casting. From Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise to every one of the child actors, there's some really great casting going on that made this movie truly something special. For starters, one of the biggest worries people had about this film going into it was that Bill Skarsgård was going to rehash Tim Curry's fantastic Pennywise performance from the 1990 miniseries. However, Skarsgård separates himself by interpreting Pennywise in a very different manner. And what's great is seeing how he succeeds in this endeavor. For comparison's sake, where Tim Curry engages a charismatic, comforting, conniving, and patient Pennywise, one that's going to take his time to get what he wants, and what he wants is very sinister. Skarsgård's Pennywise is unbelievably impatient. He's bubbling at the opportunity to tear apart his victims, rip them from the living world, and take them to the bottom of the sewers. It's like standing on a dam that seems safe enough, but you start to notice all the cracks across the surface. Not only that, the tiniest bit of water is flowing from them, dripping down to the waterbed below. You don't feel safe at all anymore, and it's quite stressful to even look at the dam, let alone stand on it. This is most notable in the opening scene with Georgie. If you were to put up a side-by-side -side with Tim Curry and Bill Skarsgård, the scenes are almost identical in their composition, likely an intentional choice from Andy Muschietti. But the biggest difference comes from the performance as Pennywise. And they both work, although aesthetically speaking, I think I enjoyed Curry's performance a lot more. Something about it just feels better. But that's not to undermine Skarsgård's work. In fact, it's safe to say a lot of people like this rendition of Pennywise, and that's quite alright. As for Bill, Eddie, Richie, Ben, Mike, Stan, and Beverly, all the child performers are quite excellent, most notably Jack Dylan Grazer, who I think is just simply fantastic. He's an absolute natural, and I mentioned earlier this year in my Shazam review that I really like him as an actor, and I think people should keep their eyes on him. 
He brings a real presence to the character of Eddie, even carrying a bit of a physical performance with the character, and that's some talented stuff for a child actor. Alongside that, you also have Finn Wolford from Stranger Things giving off a fairly good performance, although it's easy to say that he's not necessarily doing much of anything new between his performance as Richie and It and Mike in Stranger Things. Another notable performance is from Sophia Lillis, who plays Beverly. She gets some really great minor expressions down that are quite wonderful and help to bring a real intimacy to her interactions with each character, in particular Bill. In fact, everyone is doing a great job, and that's what makes things so interesting about It. Even though there's a few issues in the film we'll touch on later, the success of this film, I believe, largely stems from the charisma that bleeds from everyone in this film. It's so lathered in great and convincing performances and fun interactions, it's no wonder anyone watching will immediately care about the characters. And that's important because even when dumb stuff is happening, you can always fall back on good characters to help carry you through the film such as the aforementioned stupid choice to have your child actors perform a scene where they're all in their underwear. Talk about brainless. Besides, this movie released in September 2017, and the following month is when the Me Too movement broke out where accusations against Hollywood executives, actors, and a bunch of other notable figures in multiple industries were called out for sexual misconduct, Harvey Weinstein being one of the biggest offenders. Not only this, a fair amount of accusations included sexual misconduct with minors or individuals who were minors at the time. Most recently, you can look at accusations against Kevin Spacey, or even in the past, one could look up horrible situations that Shirley Temple had to endure as a child. The reality is, whether it be an older film or a newer one, how children are handled in films, like any other actor, should be taken seriously and with caution. And for the love of all that is holy, do not put your actors in precarious situations like this. Sure, a case can be made for some situations, but disrobing them? Goodness gracious! There are other better ways you could do this and still preserve their dignity. And just to rail this point further, even if it was for a joke, wouldn't Andy Machete's mind convinced him that it was a good idea to make a comedic scene where the camera has such a male gaze on a female minor? Sure, you have young sexual tension on a bunch of teenagers, I can understand that. But again, there has to be a better way to do this than having your camera awkwardly stare at a child in their underwear. Goodness gracious, Machete! Ugh, all this to say, you bet your bottom dollar this film would have had a different reception if it released the month after Me Too. And even then, we should take something like this very seriously. It's just unacceptable. And you know what? Come to think of it, I should have been this serious about my review for Let the Right One In, which also features a minor in their underwear. Despite that film being a better movie all around, I want to make it clear, I'm not looking at Let the Right One In with rose-tinted glasses. I think that choice is rather problematic, too. Ugh, but I digress again. I've made my point. Let's move on. This might just be a mixed bag depending on what you want from this movie, but it isn't particularly scary. I think the concept itself can be scary, a child-eating clown in the sewers, but the film isn't all that frightening. A lot of that has to do with some technical choices, such as leaning heavily on surprising its audience with editing tricks like loud noises whenever Pennywise appears, or having Pennywise move erratically like he's trying out for a part in Jacob's Ladder, but ultimately it comes in the fact that he simply doesn't carry a fatal weight to him. The opening emphasizes the threat level of Pennywise, that he's cunning, sinister, and incredibly violent, but after that, 
I don't know, it feels like he was neutered between his opening scene and subsequent scenes. It's like something happened to take away his ability to simply kill. That is, save for maybe one sequence in the middle of the film, a scene that's both exciting, scary, and pretty fun. And again, that's the thing with It. It's basically a back and forth between some good scenes and some lackluster scenes. But like always, the scenes are carried by a great cast and fairly well-written characters. Now, I think it's important to talk about It as a book adaption. You can never avoid criticism about your movie when adapting a book. And while I'm not going to go out of my way to rip into It for the changes it made from the source material, I do think we should dig into one or two things. First off, what does it mean to adapt material for a different medium? I would argue that, first and foremost, it needs to retain the thesis of its source material. By thesis, I mean purpose, or main point. In other words, what is the entire story about, and how do the sum of the parts make up the whole? For Stephen King's It, there's a lot to be said about the book, and having just binge-read the entire book in about a week's time, which by the way is a little over a thousand pages, call me crazy, there are many things that make up the whole of this book. From the story being an elaborate, detailed, intimate coming-of-age story, to also tackling things like repressed trauma and how it subtly affects us as adults, or even casual fears that keep us from doing the things we love, it takes apart so many things while personifying them through an insane, silver-and-orange, sewer-ridden clown. The book details not only its characters as children, but adults as well, and while the 2017 film sticks exclusively to children, it does tackle a few of these things that make up the source material. And by that I don't mean copying scene for scene, but creating an adaption that is, at its core, influenced by the main themes of its source material. That's why some of the changes made in the film work. They feed the main thesis of the story, and therefore succeed in adapting the source material. That doesn't mean I can't have problems with some of the changes. I already lambasted the idea of having your child actors perform in their tidy whities a scene that isn't even in the book. The other glaring change that I just really don't like is Beverly's relationship with her father. In this adaption, it's implied that the kind of abuse she retrieves from her father is sexual in nature, and that's not even in the book. Yeah, she's abused, but physically, so I can't even begin to comprehend why this change was made. It's just a strange choice when you put these two changes together. You'll be scratching your head trying to understand why they were ever made. But again, ultimately the thesis of this story remains the same. It's a grand coming-of-age story about facing one's fears, reconciling themselves in response to trauma, not just from a clown, but from their family as well. By keeping this present in the film, it succeeds as an adaption, and that's important because otherwise, you'd have a lot of fans of the book peeved at missing the mark. In fact, that's something I'm eager to dig into with IT Chapter 2, but I'll wait to share those thoughts in the next episode. And with that, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen It, what did you think of it? Did you like this new take on Stephen King's massive book, or do you still think the 1990 miniseries is better? If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let me know in the comments below, or shoot me an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, jump on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook page, and be sure to follow for updates on episodes, movie news, and my usual shenanigans. You can also support the show by leaving a review for Cinematic Doctrine on your respective podcast app. And if that's not enough, head on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month. 
as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated, with multiple tiers to choose from. All of it will go toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. Also, if you're on Letterboxd, I have a comprehensive list of every movie I've reviewed on Cinematic Doctrine with direct links to those episodes, so be sure to check that out. All this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck! We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.